Welcome to For Fintech's Sake, hosted by Zach Anderson Pettit. Zach is Managing Director of an accelerator called Fountain City Fintech and VP at MBKC Bank. For Fintech's Sake is a broad look at the world of fintech. Building the future of financial services requires deep understanding of both technology and finance. From the perspectives of founders, investors, and incumbents, we will explore the stories of people living at the intersection of finance and technology. All opinions expressed by Zach and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect those of MBKC Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hi, and welcome back to For Fintech's Sake. This is your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. Today, my guest is Laura Speakerman. Laura is a co-founder at Alloy. Alloy is building APIs for financial services. Specifically, they're starting with a customer onboarding API to handle KYC, AML, and some other customer identity information. In our interview, we cover Laura's story leading up to Alloy, including some mutual Francophile weirdness that you will hear at the beginning, so forgive that little rabbit that we chase. Uh, from there, we talk through African fintech, specifically Laura's experience raising money from Vinod Kosla for a Kenyan company. It's quite a story. We talk a lot about KYC throughout the whole interview, which stands for Know Your Customer. This is the process that you have to go through as a consumer when you're signing up for a new financial product. There's a regulator side to it. There's a consumer side to it. Laura explains and kind of sets the stage with old school KYC and how it was handled and also kind of how Alloy handles it today. One thing that really clicked for me after this interview though is how much of a competitive advantage a solid KYC and onboarding process can be. We all know that the screens as you go through an onboarding process are very important. Is there low friction, et cetera, et cetera. But so much of that I realized after this interview actually just goes into the ability to handle KYC and error handling and everything correctly. If you listen to this interview with that filter on, then there really could be some actionable steps for you to take back to your business, to your bank, whatever it is that you're kind of working on day to day. Laura is truly a fascinating and dynamic human in and of herself, and Alloy is all over the place and a really hot company in RegTech right now. I learned a ton from this interview. I hope you get something out of it as well and to have some helpful nuggets to take home with you. Without further ado, my interview with Laura Speakerman. Give me the early days of Laura's life. Uh, where are you from? Kind of what did the what did the formative years look like? Sure. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Berkeley, California. Uh, not too far from where I am right now, actually, in Oakland, California. And um, grew up uh, going to French school, which was um, yeah. You didn't tell me this previously. I, I know. I went to, yeah, I went to French school growing up. So, so like French immersion, like everything was in French? Yeah. Yeah. PE was in French. Math was in French. Laura, yeah. You're, yeah. A, you're a kindred soul. Me too. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Literally. No, my entire, I don't, yeah, this is hilarious that this is happening right now, but yes, That's me too. so funny. Yeah. I graduated from a, uh, in eighth grade, I graduated and had to like teach myself math in English because all yeah. of it was like in remedial math, my first, uh, like in freshman year in high school, because I had to relearn math yeah. in English instead of knowing everything in French. Yeah. That's really funny. Well, yeah, same basically. So I, that's, Weird. yeah, that's great. Um, I didn't really realize like how, how important it was to me, I think until later in life, you know, it was like a, just a skill that I think I, I had somewhere in my brain. Maybe you had the same experience where it's like, you have this just extra skill, but it doesn't come in very useful most of the time. Um, but it did mean that when I was studying in college, uh, studying abroad, I ended up, um, wanting to go to a French speaking country that wasn't France. And, and I went to college uh, at Barnard College in, in New York. Um, so I decided to spend a semester somewhere and ended up being Senegal, which is a French speaking country. Um, and because of that, I, that's how I sort of got into microfinance, which is how I got into fintech. What, what yeah. did you kind of think you wanted to be in college? What did you think that was going to lead you all to? Yeah, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. So I came from a family of, of lawyers. Um, both my, my mom and my dad were, were lawyers. And I just didn't really know that there was anything else. They both were in public service. And so I sort of thought of like doing, you know, public defending or something that that was sort of in service to to the greater good. Um, but I just did really truly did not know what other jobs existed besides being a lawyer. And so wow. in college I got, you know, I did my internships with 
like a lobbying firm and um, the DA's office and, and was really had and, and a, a, a lawyer here in California and really liked it a lot. I mean, I, I think that was part of why I continued down that path was nothing sort of indicated that it wasn't what I wanted it to be until I graduated college uh, or until I spent a couple of years at a law firm, loved it, applied to law school, got in, and then started looking at the loans and realizing that I better really want to do this yeah. if I was going to pay those back. And that just, I, I graduated during the financial crisis and sort of looking at um, how much I would have to make, you know, to be able to do it. I'd have to be at probably a top law firm. I'd heard all sorts of horrible things about what your life is like when you work at one of those firms. And, um, you know, started, started rethinking my, my life plan. <laughs> so you're like, a, you're an apple that fell really close to the tree and just like slowly started yes, rolling down the hill exactly away right. from the tree. Okay. Yes. And I was fortunate to have, you know, a mom at that point who was, was happy to let me kind of find my own way and wasn't pressuring me to, to end up at law school. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So after deciding to to zag where the rest of your family had zigged, um, yeah. what what happened next? What was the next piece that kind of moved you further in life? Yeah, so I thought about what I, I I sort of just like went back to the drawing board and thought like, what else do I like to do? What kinds of jobs exist? Period. I would talk to friends who had started other you know done other things, been in other careers. Um, friends who worked in business and technology and started realizing that there were other jobs. And then I just started thinking like, what have I liked before? And one of the things I had done in college was in Senegal was study microfinance. And I ended up writing my thesis about microfinance. Um, and it was right around the time when cell phones were becoming like feature, feature phones were becoming ubiquitous across, um, across the world, but particularly, you know, in, in West Africa where I was. And I thought a lot about how, um, how that would change things. Like how could something as simple as a, you know, $20, $10 feature phone change financial services. And so I, I never thought about it as a career because it just seemed like this thing that was happening in the world. Um, but fortunately I, I found um, this guy, this online, basically this guy who had started a company. And at that point it was really just an idea with a little bit of code that, that they'd written to, um, provide a tool for microfinance institutions to be able to disperse and collect payments over M-Pesa, which is the, the system operated by the telco there in Kenya. So that I, I just kind of found him. I said, hey, let me think about, you know, could I help you out? I don't really know what I'm doing with my life. I'm taking a break from law school or, or you know, considering reconsidering everything I've been doing. Can I just come work for you for a little bit while I figure it out? He said yes. And so I moved to, to Nairobi with these two guys. Um, and as they started. And so now the company, it, it was called Copo Copo. It still exists. Now it's a merchant cash advance company. Um, but yeah, it just, I, that's how I got into, to financial services. So, so let's, let's unpack lots of pieces of that because I think they're for the average American that's kind of functioning in the world of fintech or banking yeah. or whatever, like things like um, M-Pesa is maybe not, you know, top of mind or being discussed every day. So right. let's start there. What is the M-Pesa network and kind of like a quick history behind sure. it? Yeah. So I don't know, I don't know the years, but basically maybe a decade ago or so, mm -hmm. um, M-Pesa or, um, Safaricom is the telco. So the equivalent to like a Verizon here in the United States uh, provided P2P um, kind of sending and receiving functionality for airtime. So there, you know, they were operate on a system where you you buy airtime. So rather than paying, you're doing a postpaid bill system like we mostly do in the United States, where I, I have a monthly bill I pay at the end of every month for my my cell phone service. There, it's airtime where you can buy kind of you know pay as you go. Mm -hmm. And they noticed the the telco noticed that people were were sending each other airtime in lieu of fiat currency. So they were just using it as another mechanism um, to exchange value. And they said, hey, we should try to figure out this is actually what people are doing. And um, if so, can we add a layer to, to what we offer so that people could actually send money, not just airtime? And fortunately, the Central Bank of Kenya there had been really, you know, was progressive and was willing to let the telco experiment a little bit and see if they could this this could work function and, and sort of provide this financial services um, system to people who'd been really excluded from it um, since since Kenya is relatively poor um, and and relatively unbanked mm -hmm. and so 
eventually they end up when I when I got there in 2011 or 12 um, they had I think the penetration was about 75% of adult Kenyans use M-Pesa so it, it's really so you don't have to have a fancy phone you just have a really you know dumb feature phone you sign up for the service and you can get going so you can you fill you you basically um, top up your your wallet at one of many of tens of thousands um, kind of stores, right? So it's equivalent of like a 7-Eleven or something. Would you'd go in, you'd you'd send them, you'd give them some cash, they'd top up your account. Um, that's the same for for withdrawing money as well. And it just became, um, you know, it became really fast growing, very valuable. People were doing all sorts of things with it, but they, what they weren't doing with the sort of gap that Copa Copa noticed was that they weren't allowing B2B payments or B2C payments yet. And so mm -hmm. that was sort of the next layer that we thought made sense for the ecosystem to develop um, since people were using it for store value, you know, P2P payments, all sorts of things, but not yet for merchant payments. It was almost kind of like only this P2P side existed and we're kind of extrapolating out all of the right. other pieces. So initially the use case that we were interested in is right now I can pay you on M-Pesa, but if I take out a loan, a microfinance loan, so call it a $200 loan for my local microfinance institution, I'm even if I have M-Pesa, there's nothing that can be done. I'm still going, I'm potentially taking, you know, several matatus and spending lots of money and you know, taking time off works, maybe three or four or five hours to get to the microfinance institution to collect the, the cash that is my loan. Um, and mm -hmm. then, you know, leaving with it and then having to make repayments rather than just getting it on my cell phone. I shouldn't have to go into the branch and go in to make my, my weekly or monthly payments. I can just do it all on my phone. Um, that was the initial use case. And then it was everything from barber shops to um, grocery stores to sort of anything else where people needed cash in and out. Um, this was a good replacement for that. Parts of what you're describing make it sound like Kenya is like 20 years behind us. <laughs> yeah. And parts of what you're describing make it sound like Kenya is almost like 20 years ahead of us. Yeah. Are, are there pieces of that that you kind of wish could be extrapolated out and attached to the U.S. economy? Like, are you, you think there's any lessons yeah. there that you wish were applied? Yeah, I think some of the lessons are, are from the central bank itself, right? So the idea that the central bank really let this happen and encourage it to happen was a really yeah. good thing. And there's certainly lessons to be learned. Um, another is, is not something that US can sort of help with right now, although probably in pieces, but there are ways to sort of leapfrog. We don't have to do everything that, you know, Kenya didn't have to do things the way that every other country did in terms of getting increasingly banked. Mm. They could skip ahead using technology. Um, it did, and it also didn't have to be really sophisticated technology, right? This wasn't about Wi-Fi. it wasn't about, um, you know, complicated machines. Yeah. It was just like cell phones on the cell network. Um, and, and then you, even Tanzania had tried to do it too. And there are certain conditions that made Kenya just this really special case. And I don't think anyone has ever replicated that success, nor do I think it will happen again. Hmm. It's pretty unique. Um, and Tanzania had uh, less support from the central government that from the, from the central bank than, um, than Kenya did. So it, it, it was going to look different. They had four or five different mobile money systems, whereas Kenya was really concentrated with one. I mean, they had mm. a couple of others, but the, the Safaricom market share was really high and, and mm -hmm. Tanzania was pretty split between four or five. And so it was harder to sort of, you had to force interoperability on those uh, different telcos, which was sort of a fight between those companies and the mm. central bank. And um, and eventually, actually, the Gates Foundation got involved. Um, I don't know where things lie today in Tanzania, but it was really, it was a little bit of a perfect storm. And I just, you know, I'm not sure we can, we can extrapolate pieces of it, but there, I don't think that we'll see the success in another market, an underdeveloped market, um, kind of getting to where Kenya got to, unfortunately. It sounds like the biggest piece of what you just described is the regulators kind of coming to the table and saying, let's, let's kind of get out of the way almost and just yeah. like allowing innovation to happen kind of thing. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Telcos being telcos being sort of this important market force willing to experiment the right. regulators, letting them do that. Um, a population that was also very urban and rural sending money between the two. So there mm. was this like high demand for a solution because there's a lot of people living in Nairobi sending money home 
to their families. And so that's a lot of the dynamic too, that you would need to, to really see that kind of uptick, I think. So obviously the, uh, the economic system and just kind of what you were dealing with in Kenya was a drastic shift from kind of what you experienced in the U S um, yeah. just on like the, the rails of money and everything else. But let's yeah. take it, let's take it to kind of like a personal Laura level. What was it like going from the world that you were living in kind of, yeah. you know, by no means like, you know, struggling for a meal or anything no. like that yeah. <laughs> um, to moving to Kenya and functioning in a totally different yeah. society trying to build this company? Yeah. I mean, in some ways it was less shocking because I had spent time in Senegal, which is sure. um, less developed than, than Kenya for sure. And so um, that was much more shocking. I'd never really traveled to that you know, underdeveloped of a country before. And so um, going, going to Senegal was shocking when I was 21 or however old I was. Yeah. Um, Kenya was less so. So Kenya was still very different, um, but, but it, it was pretty, had a pretty good software scene by the time I got there. So I went to work every day at an accelerator that, mm. you know, would be sort of like a, a mini version of a WeWork today, but it was filled with programmers and entrepreneurs and, um, kind of corporate sponsors coming in. And, um, so that they had, there was a, there's a couple of people who really started that movement, I think a couple of years before I got there. And so by the time I was there, it felt like it was pretty, you know, there was just a lot, there was a lot of infrastructure that had been built. Um, there was still Nairobi itself was very dangerous. And that was, that was the part that was shocking and not that easy to adjust to. Um, yeah. I had just been living in New York where you can walk at, you know, two in the morning anywhere and feel safe and Nairobi, you know, six o'clock at night feels um, iffy. So that was the biggest difference for me personally was just feeling less, uh, less safe <laughs> in hmm. my environment. What was it like being, building a company specific, like living there? It sounds like you were kind yeah. of prepared a little bit based on Senegal, but what was it like building a company? I mean, the burn yeah. is obviously dramatically different. Like yeah. what was the regulatory space like all that? Yeah. Yeah. The, the burn is very low as you can imagine. So actually all three of us lived together, which made things really cheap. Um, so we kind of lived and worked together in the same space and it was, um, and we were, we were also not really paying ourselves at the time. So there wasn't there, the, it was nice because we could survive for a while yeah, and not very much money. <laughs> very limited um, burn. Yeah. The hard part was like, you can live on low burn, but there was no real investment ecosystem set up there either. So we were continuously trying to fundraise and that was really hard. Um, and so kind of the, the lack of a venture model, venture ecosystem there meant there was also just not a whole lot of, there, there were, there were individual entrepreneurs, but the, the sort of system wasn't as set up in the way that you know, here, if you meet one investor, you easily now can meet five investors. Yeah. Or if you meet one former entrepreneur, you can meet five others. It's just sort of this network effect that has built up. And, and I'm sure Kenya today is very different, probably has a lot more of that. But that was sort of just starting at the time. And we could not raise money locally. So we ended up having to, to, to come back to California to raise money um, after trying their you know, unsuccessfully for months. Um, but the nice part was we also we also did a business competition here in California, we at one point we won like third place prize or something. At, this is at UC Berkeley Business School, and um, we got five thousand dollars in a giant check. And everyone else who won money didn't care at all. You know, even if it was ten thousand, I think first place was twenty five thousand. Made no difference to any of them. But for us, five thousand dollars was like three months burn. So we were oh, super my. happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a that's a stepwise shift. Yep. Um, so what was like, what was that like raising money? I think you said, yeah. if I remember correctly, you were raising from Vinod Kosla. So that in and of itself has to be an interesting story. And then what's yeah. it like yeah. raising for a Kenyan company in the U S it's hard. <laughs> um, it was, uh, it was hard then. It's probably still hard now. I think, you know, even here you can see venture investors don't even like to sort of leave California or New York to make investments. So it's hard enough to get them on a plane just within the United States let alone to a, another country, I think, um, and, and particularly a country where there was some instability. Yeah. Um, not the time I was there, but there had been major unrest a couple of years before that. Um, you know, currency fluctuations, sort of all these additional risks you take on as an investor, yeah. they're, they're all there. Um, so it was really, it was very hard. And there were, as we left, and I, I because of my next job, I ended up sort of tracking a bunch of the venture firms and the venture ecosystem in East Africa. You know, a lot more came about afterwards 
Um, but it really has taken time to go from these big private equity funds, like largely infrastructure focused mm-hmm. or big CPG or whatever it is. And, and now they've kind of, we're seeing a little bit more um, kind of grow to, to, to meet early stage investor, early stage um, entrepreneur, entrepreneur needs. So that's, that was not, that was pretty nascent and very, very little that existed at the time, at least as far as we could tap into. So we did have to come back to California um, ended up raising from Vinod Kosla, who luckily at the time had been, um, had been, he had been funding Square and the time Square was lease, was releasing um, uh, Square Capital. And okay. so he sort of saw our business, you know, doing payments, in fact, just, just kind of P2P payments, B2B payments and said, you know, this is, you could actually be lending off of this data and make a lot more money than in payments. And so that was sort of the transition that happened when he, uh, when he funded the company. So did you have to figure out the whole micro lending side of the business then? Was it kind of like, here's a check and now go figure that out? Or it was like, yeah. here's a check and go keep doing what you're so doing. So I, yeah, I left the company before that full transition happened. So I joined a, a firm in San Francisco when, um, at the point where they were sort of starting to transition or, or starting to add on the kind of merchant lending capabilities. Um, I think the regulations make it a lot easier than in the U.S. to do that kind of stuff. So it's, it's not quite as complicated as it might seem. Um, probably not as complicated as, as it was for Square to do Square Capital. Um, and, and I think the lending market, there's just such a big missing middle kind of in terms of lending in East Africa that the opportunity is huge. Um, it's really massive. And, and there's banks are just not lending to that segment and it's really untapped. So I think it was an obvious and, and very good path to go down. But yeah, I wasn't the one kind of spearheading that at the time. Transitioning back to the U.S., um... One, why? Why did you come back to the U.S.? I imagine it was probably you were ready to get back. Um, was. But was there anything like that drove you back here or was it just kind of time? No, it was time. I mean, I think it, it, initially I came back to to help fundraise for the company. And then once it was clear they were settled and like going to be able to raise and continue going on, I really I didn't want to move back to Kenya. I had a great time. I'd learned a ton, but it was a tough place to live. Um, yeah. And I was sort of ready to to you know, be back in the United States. And so I, um, I also thought at the time, like, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be on the operating side or the investor side. And so I ended up moving, I learned a lot during the fundraising process and building out sort of the business model and business plan for Copo Copo thought maybe being on the other side would be fun. And it was. I was going to ask, was it fun? So, I mean, you spent, what, two and a half years kind of on that side of things? Yeah, I spent two and a half years at a firm called Imprint Capital, which is now part of Goldman Sachs. Um, and was very fortunate to work for primarily one client um, and sort of building out the emerging markets practice there. So it hadn't really existed before. Um, It was kind of one-off deals here and there for some clients, but I worked primarily with with, uh, a client who wanted to do almost all like exclusively emerging markets deals. So Hmm. um, they had hired, the firm had hired um, Patrick Maloney to lead this entire practice. And I worked with him on um all sorts of deals but we did a lot of of um of vc funds um in india latin america and east africa Hmm. or sub-saharan africa really you just you refuse to just do anything in the united states don't you like even if you're in the united states you can't just do it in the united states which was not very practical um geographically speaking but it was a lot of fun so it was it was fun yeah so Two and a half years on that side of things. Was there mm-hmm. anything about that that kind of drove you into this world with Alloy? There was kind of like a little pit stop in between there, right? Before you started Alloy? Yes, there was a pit stop. So after two and a half years at Imprint, um, I'd gotten to do a lot of cool stuff. But I, I, coincidentally, I'd ended up with, with a mandate to do a lot of financial services and fintech stuff. So I'd gotten to spend a lot of time both on the fun side and, and direct um, with with entrepreneurs and, and companies sort of learning about what other models existed in fintech around the world. Um, a few of which, you know, I, I still follow to this day and, and just think there's some really cool stuff that I got to be a part of back then. Um, awesome. But would be jealous of those people. There was a time, you know, two years in where I said like, I want to be doing what you're doing. I'm sitting up here at this 35,000 foot level sort of, you know, just w- wishing I could be the one making those decisions and building that product and talking to those clients and all that kind of stuff. And so I ended up, 
um, leaving that leaving um, imprint and joining uh, a payments company that was doing ACH transactions. Um, so I, I knew I didn't want to do credit cards and, and I, I really wanted to do sort of payments, but, but something that felt um, like it was, was an infrastructure that the world needed. And to me, an ACH was just one that um, needed a lot of improvements, still does, frankly. Yeah. Um, but that was, that was what I, I joined a company, met my current co-founders there actually, which is, which is how we all kind of got started on this. So yeah, let's dig into that. Tell me that yeah. story. How did, uh, number one, I mean, did you all hit it off off the bat? Like, were you kind of all friends? And then how did yeah. you actually come up with this is a problem and let's go fix right. it? Right. Yeah. So we, um, we did all hit it off, although I, I can't, most of them actually knew each other from high school. So of the kind of founding team of Alloy, three of them went to the same high school and I'm sort of the, the loner um, from California. They all were in Richmond, Virginia. So, um, but, I, but the team was fantastic there. We, there were, you know, uh, there were reasons we wanted to move on that didn't have to do with sort of our founding team. Um, but there were, it, it was clear there was just sort of energy and appetite and, and passion for solving um, infrastructure problems in kind of mass market digital financial services. So we just, mm -hmm. we knew that it was screwed up in the United States. We knew there was tons of room for improvement. And we picked off a couple of problems at that previous company, but the one that felt really compelling when we kept going over it in our heads and when we would talk to clients about it and just the thing that kept coming up was, you know, when I'm onboarding my customers, so, so this could be like a brokerage or a wallet or a um, sort of a lender, kind of anyone that we were talking to, they'd say, I'm losing 50% of my customers during the identity verification process of performing my you know, customer fraud checks because I can't find them, right? They might be young, they move around a lot, they're not from the United States, there's all mm -hmm. sorts of reasons. They are who they say they are probably, but I'm sending them to manual review and then I'm just losing them. And so we started looking at that, we saw what the customer acquisition cost of these products was, we saw mm -hmm. um, what the lifetime value of these products were and we were just realizing this was just tons of money being left on the table mm -hmm. and a really, really poor customer experience. And I noticed it for myself too, when I sign up for an app, a new digital, you know, finished service or, or product online or, or on my phone, I have so little patience. And if I don't, if I don't get through that sign up process and get approved immediately, I'm so unlikely to continue on to go to a call center to, you know, to, to push through whatever little roadblock I have and, and I'll probably never fund my account. And so we just, that problem felt increasingly compelling and um, we decided to, you know, solve it. Um, we started looking at solutions in the market and realized there was nothing that was really doing what we needed. And so we, we built our own. So yeah, talk, talk me through that. What does the status or the did, I guess I should say past tense, the status quo of a KYC experience look like? Um, yeah. Pick a bank, pick a fintech, sure. whatever, or, or don't even pick a specific company. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. What, is, what was that from A all the way through, like I am KYC'd? What did that look yeah. like? Yeah. So typically what we would see is, uh, and I'll leave, I'll leave sort of sophisticated fintech companies out, out of this because I think they've figured out their own solutions in many yeah. cases if they're not using Alloy. Yeah. Um, but the kind of average bank we saw was doing um, one to two checks. So they were checking against a public records database or credit database and looking for name, address, social security number, date of birth, phone, email address, potentially, maybe not all of those elements. Um, if they weren't all in one of these, those two sources of data, in a credit credit bureau or a public records database, they were sending you to manual review. And so much of the time it was the name matches, the date of birth matches. So it's pretty likely that it's that person, but the address doesn't match because you've moved in the last two years sure. and they haven't caught up with that. And so you get sent to manual review. And we were saying that 50% of time people were being sent to manual review and 80% of those people were just dropping off entirely. And is manual review, obviously it's going to some mans, some, some, yep, hand, some hands are reviewing them. Yes. Um, and then they're what, checking the yellow pages? Like uh, where, where do they actually go yeah. to find this data? So they could go to other databases, um, potentially if they just weren't linked to in their, their kind of sign up flow. But most okay. often it was get on the phone, go through email or go to fax to ask for additional verification. So it might be send in your W-2 or send in a, um, your driver's license, something that, that the user would then have to do. Did you just say facts? Yeah, facts. 
Okay. I just, yeah. I just needed to double check yeah. that you just said facts. Do you remember, you remember what those are? I've, I've heard of them. I don't know. I watched <laughs> Office Space recently and I think I saw one in there. I'm not really sure though if I've ever seen one. In person. There you go. Yeah. Um, okay. So then that's, that's kind of the classical way. What is, mm -hmm. what does it look like today if a bank or a fintech is using Alloy as an example? Yeah. So the bank or the fintech company makes one API call to Alloy. So during the signup flow, the user is entering their same information. The user experience on the front end doesn't change. We're being sent that information via one API call. And within one to two seconds, we're sending a response that says yes, no, or maybe. I mean, yes, meaning you're good to go, account is opened. No, meaning we, you look like fraud, we're rejecting you, or manual review, which still happens, right? We don't have enough information. Sure. But our, our rates of automated decisioning are much higher. So about 95 to 98% of the time, we can say yes or no automatically. Wow. So you don't have to manually review them. And... Uh, and that means that you're going to convert people at much higher levels because they're no longer being sent to manual review um, when you don't have to. And so we're just going through the, the kind of the secret sauce is really using a bunch of different databases. So we're not just relying on one single database ever. We're using public records data, credit data, sort of the usual suspects plus alternative data. So phone databases, fraud databases, device data, sort of anything we can get our hands on that helps us understand you know, is Zach really Zach? Is Laura really mm -hmm. Laura? Um, and trying to identify fraud. And we give you a rules engine to configure how you, how you um, call out for those data sources, in what order, what your backups are, what sort of thresholds and, and rules you want to apply uh, so that everything is really flexible and also so that you're not relying on any single source of data for, for one of the kind of many decisions you have to make. 50%-ish to 90 to 95%-ish jump. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I mean, clearly there's some secret sauce in there. Yeah. Is a big portion of that, though, just increasing the amount of data that you actually have to search through? Like, does does having just a really sizable database on the in the back end go from 50 to 75 or something like that? No, yeah, it's a good question. So certainly some of that is, right? Some of yeah. it's just like a second source of data will increase your decision, your your, your conversion by X percent. Okay. But a lot of it really is that it's the combination of data sources. So in a silo, you could decision, you, you might be moving from one to the next. So if you answer this right, then you move to the next step. But really mm. you, want, you want to create not just a happy path and an unhappy path. You want to create all sorts of paths. And so by using a combination of data sources, you can increase conversion and really just reduce false positives um, by using them all in conjunction with each other. And so I can't really break down the numbers for you, but it's, it's some of it is the data, but a lot of it is just having a tool to manage the data sources and the rules that you're using. Um, and part of it's not just even the tool to, to create waterfalls, but making it dynamic and, and um, configurable over time so that when mm -hmm. you have a new fraud ring that emerges or a new source of data that's relevant or a new line of business with new requirements, you can easily spin those up. So in a few seconds, a few clicks, you're able to have this new version deployed rather than going back to your dev team, asking them to change a rule from a 700 to an 800, waiting a few weeks, deploying it to see if it even works. Um, so like without even knowing what the impact is, whereas in our tool, you can test things, you can roll them back. So it's just a, it, a lot of it's about being able to easily optimize over time and, and just making that, that configurable um, and kind of optimization process really simple. Talk a little bit about, I mean, guess without going too deep into the rabbit hole um, mm -hmm. about the tech stack, everybody I think assumes that yeah. as soon as there's data involved or uh, like identity data, I should say yes. involved, yeah. that we're automatically going to pull in blockchain and yeah. this thing has to be built on blockchain. Yeah. Um, how do you think about that? When will that be true? If ever, yeah. all of that stuff, all the buzzwords. Sure. So we think about, we do think about blockchain in the sense that there are, um, there are interesting companies out there working on identity solutions using blockchain technology. And it's tempting for, for a variety of reasons, but I think largely kind of the real time aspect and, and sort of the things that we can, that we have seen you can accomplish with blockchain technology are mostly accomplished not using blockchain te technology today. That doesn't mean we wouldn't, I mean, I, I would be interested in a future where that's possible. And I think there's some federated identity um, solutions or, or sort of attempts at solutions out there that seem really, really interesting. I think that the basic truth that we hold at Alloy is that we are client driven and we are um, 
responsive to the realities of today. So even if the perfect world would be sort of a, a blockchain-based identity mechanism, um, and, and that would be really intriguing. I'm sure there's some downsides to it, but just conceptually, it makes a lot of sense. It's not the way that uh, banks are going to adopt this because it's not the way that regulators are adopting it. Mm-hmm. And so we really focus on how do we push our clients and, and therefore the regulators that regulate them, how do we push them to um, think more creatively about identity, be able to be a little bit more flexible, being able to test the efficacy of new data sources and, and new rules and all that stuff without completely using losing the, the paradigms that they're used to or the structures that they're used to. And to us, that means have a, have a place to do that, sort of have this configurable rules engine where you can bring a new source of data, but you can also empirically prove that certain things are going to, are performing better than others. And we give them that tool set to say, Hey, you know, FINRA, look what we're doing. Or, um, you know, here in an audit, we've proved that this, you know, using phone numbers is actually really powerful identity mm-hmm. as opposed to addresses, which is our, which are a little bit outdated. Um, so that's how we look at it. I think the blockchain stuff is really interesting. There's a couple of companies that we, we like, and we sort of stay in touch with, and we in theory could work with them or power them, but it's not how we see the next five years going. Yeah. Are there other pieces of, you know, kind of hot tech right now that you might not be able to use? Like one comes to mind of just like machine learning or, you yeah. know, this whole, what, whatever definition you have of AI, since everyone has a different one. Um, can you, yeah. do you kind of have to avoid that world as well? Just do the lack of explain, explain, explainability. I can't speak English <laughs> yeah, today. Yeah. No, I think you, you hit it right on the head, which is we can use it, but we have to be able to explain it. So that's where we, we don't want to go into the world of sort of like um, black boxes, algorithms that no one can understand. And so we start in, in terms of our own abilities, we focus more on kind of machine learning models and, and algorithms related to fraud. Um, when it comes to things like KYC and AML, it's much more sort of rules-based and, and less sort of scary algorithm-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do stay away from, we stay away from the, the kind of um, data sources or or scores that are really just inexplicable, but because we're client driven, we sort of understand what has been accepted by the highly regulated community already, what has been explained where, where they feel comfortable and where they don't. And so we, we sort of adjust and work with our clients along those lines, but it is, yeah, it's one we just have to be mindful and we have to, part of our, our value proposition from day one was we want everything to be transparent. We want our clients to fully understand how we're making the decisions that we're making and why mm-hmm. we want them to be able to show them to the auditors and they in fact use our tool when they, they go to auditors, right? Or, or to bank regulators or bank examiners. Um, and we want that. We don't want to be sort of a, this, this score that you can, you know, that we came up with and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but that you could never sort of go and demonstrate in, in public. So you've said client driven a couple times and it leads me yeah. to a question. Um, and you've also said regulatorily driven or like regulator driven a couple times. And it leads me to a question that actually came through Twitter. Um, that I was just kind of threw out there that I was broadly interviewing someone like you. And one of the questions was, are they client driven or regulator driven? And it sounds like you're almost saying both. How do you kind of, how do you square those? Yeah. So we square it in the sense that we talk to primarily clients. So our clients, which are banks and fintech companies, all of whom are regulated. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we go through a process of dealing with our clients, which includes lots of vendor due diligence, lots of discussions with their BSA teams, all sorts of stuff. And by virtue of that, we're sort of getting like the questions we get are either explicitly or implicitly from the regulators as well, right? So they're, they're asking all sorts of stuff about audit trail and how long we're storing stuff from and where's the data from. And, mm-hmm. and that is ultimately from the regulators. So what we care about is what is our client's perspective from the regulators or of the regulators? Sometimes it might not even be, sometimes it might be off from reality, right? So sometimes they'll say something about a type of ID that check that they need to do because they believe that they're required to do so by law. And sometimes we can see, you know, in the Bank Secrecy Act that that's not the case. But they've come to believe that based on their conversations with their bank examiner or whatever. And so we have to do, you know, we are, we are client-driven. We want to do what they need us to do. We, we do also occasionally sort of have engagements with the regulators directly, but that's pretty minimal, um, honestly, for the, for the reasons we mentioned. We're not trying to be prescriptive towards our clients or give them advice from the regulators. We're not trying to tell them what... FinCEN requires we really want to do what they have decided that they need to do. And all of them are 
very well trained in that, have very expensive compliance people on staff to, to, to decide their own requirements. Do you get pushback about the fact that you don't have kind of regulators internal at Alloy? Like, it seems like a part of that conversation that would make it easier would be like, oh yeah, yeah. we got this person in the back seat and they blessed all <laughs> yeah. this and let's keep going. Yeah, we've thought about a lot that a lot. So I think like inherently we, we know, you know, some of the, we certainly have learned a lot of the basics of the BSA requirements and, and some of the compliance requirements that we touch um, we, we really don't want to be in the business of directly advising our clients on their yeah. BSA requirements. And, and that's part of why, I mean, it's a, sort of a convenient truth, but we don't want, we don't have, you know, a CAMS professional, a compliance professional on staff today, partly for that reason. Now there's also sort of the um, cultural piece or sort of the legitimacy piece where sure having a, a, a again, a sort of an expensive BSA officer on staff for us would be very helpful probably. Right. It might, mm -hmm. it might help us with some of the uh, more conservative clients we have where, or, or in cases where we are really having to win over just a tough compliance department, but ultimately because it's not our business to um, tell them how they should be doing their identity and compliance checks and in fact, they have full control in our in our dashboards and in our tool. They have full control over how they make these checks. We're not controlling that at all. Um, we really believe, and and it's so far has been the case that it's more comfortable for them to have that on staff and use our tool um, and be experts themselves rather than the other way around. But you know, it is something that we think about, given that we're young and and relatively inexperienced, and yeah. you know, specifically when it comes to the compliance aspect. So let's say you know growth continues as it is you're uh you know unicorn five to ten years from now mm -hmm. things are all beautiful and great um do you think the dna is going to have to change to get you there like do you think you'll be able to maintain that super technical dna with no regulator kind of blood in there to do that or do you think that'll have to change we will definitely add on uh regulator blood at some point um i don't think we will ever be in the business of telling our clients how to make regulatory decisions um, and I think we always want to maintain the DNA, the product DNA. And that's, that's where we started. We, you know, we wanted to create a product for fintech developers specifically. That's how we got started on all of this. And we want to maintain that. We think we're solving a really critical infrastructure problem in fintech. And we want to stay, stay focused on those users, which are really product people. They are PMs, they are head of deposits, they are, um, you know, head of onboarding. And, and of course they touch KYC because it's such a critical part of it, but yeah. we're not telling them how to solve KYC, you know, checks. We're not telling them here's the exact database you need to use, or here's how you catch a money launderer. We are telling, we're giving them the tools to do that. Um, and we're focused on, on the, the, the you know, conversion aspect and the fraud aspect. Yeah. Um, we don't work. And the kind of nice part about where we sit is we don't work to make you more compliant. Right. We're not starting from non-compliant to making you compliant. That's not the value proposition that Alloy has. We're starting with compliant and ending at compliant, mm. but we're changing a whole bunch of stuff around conversion and fraud and all sorts of, you know, user experience. Um, I think there are companies out there who take you from non-compliant to compliant, but that's, that's not us. That's really interesting as just a dynamic. One of the conversations, you know, Joanne Barefoot, she yes, was on course, yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago. And yeah. um, one of the things that she is very adamant about, and that I actually, yeah. I mean, I'm very adamant that there needs to be a balance between finance and technology in fintech. Yeah. But I think it's so interesting in like the KYC AML world, how like the way that you just explained that to me, I actually buy like the idea that, you know, <laughs> we have all as I'm sitting inside a bank on my end You're right seeing, now. Yeah. Yeah. We have the folks internally that really have the opinions and know the way that they want the logic to work, yeah. but we sure as hell aren't going to build something like Alloy internally. So taking yeah. the best of both worlds and you not necessarily having to push your opinion on anybody, you just being right. a technologist. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. opening my mind, Laura. You're I think that's right. Mind. I mean, I think we can, you know, we can push you to think we can tell you about new sources of data that you wouldn't know about because the, sure. the compliance staff wouldn't necessarily know about that. Um, we can we can push you to adopt new rules. We can tell you what we've seen other clients having experience. We can tell you about fraud. But really, you guys are going to be the experts on it. You're yeah. the ones regulated. You're the ones incurring huge fines if you screw up, not us. So thanks for the reminder. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> none of the opinions on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, what? How long does it take to do an integration? Kind of a random question, but yeah, pretty quick. So well. It, it, for a fintech company, it's especially quick. So they can integrate the API in like a week. Um, I mean, they could integrate it in a couple of hours, but it's really like 
integrating an, an API, trying to configure it can take a little bit of time. Um, and that's where we, we step in sometimes to help you understand sort of best practices, things we've seen before, data sources we like, all that kind of stuff. So for a fintech company on average, we probably get them up and running within a month. Um, for a bank, it can be anywhere from, you know, three to 12 months, depending on the size of the institution, how much we're replacing internal systems, um, whether we're integrating with an account opening vendor or not. So a bunch of different variables there. Awesome. Uh, that one is honestly just because I hope you get some biz dev out of this. Um, Me too. Me too. <laughs> um, so last, last question before kind of the final question. Yeah. So second to last question. And this is kind of a random one and I did not give you any warning about this. So if okay. you take a second to think, that's fair. <laughs> The world of reg tech, the more that I've thought about it, like fintech in general, right? Like it feels pretty positive sum. There can be a number of gigantic winners in the world of fintech. Thinking yeah. of neobanks, there's probably going to be a few of them. Thinking of robo-advisors, there's probably going to be a few of them. Mm -hmm. Thinking, because in the my thinking behind that is there's no real obvious network effects that mean that there would only be one one Facebook, right? Do you think that that's true inside of reg tech like do you think that there are going to be you know hummingbird is an example a yeah. number of aml you know solutions a number of kyc solutions or do you think that there are any kind of hidden network effects that lead yeah. this to being a zero sum area I, yeah that's a great question and it's one that i think we we think about a lot when it comes to things like fundraising and who's our yeah. real competition. Yeah. Um, I, I do think it gets fairly close to zero sum when you think about the network effects just on the data alone. So being able to understand, um, you know, catch money laundering at one institution means that you're going to probably right. understand it at another institution. I think that's really, really powerful. So something like Hummingbird reflects that. I think if they can get to scale, that's a pretty good moat. Um, I think also the the KYC feels a little bit different than some, so, so I'll go like fraud. I think that's also the case and consortiums have been built around that. Mm -hmm. So like EWS and some other um, uh, sort of fraud consortiums feel like they've taken that on. And I don't know whether that's truly zero sum. KYC is different in just that the, the data is less shareable. Um, you know, one institution, one bank can't sort of guarantee the KYC status of one individual and so that the next bank, that same individual is just mm -hmm. automatically KYC'd. We haven't seen that model. Um, of course, if kind of blockchain technology um, and or federated identity models take off, that might be different. But in kind of the current version of the world, that's not what we see. So I think it's, it's sort of less, um, less of a powerful network effect than pure fraud. But I do think that having that data, understanding what makes a good uh, identity, like a safe identity is, is pretty powerful. Um, I still think there's gonna be a number of data elements. So the way I look at it is like, there, there may, you know, Alloy, of course, I believe is going to be sort of the leader in this space, but there's going to be a whole lot of data that powers that. So I think there's going to be some, like, just one example is business data. So we don't go out and collect business data. We will never be in the business of collecting business data, right? Like, there. There are some companies working on it, some really interesting ones. We are going to sit always a layer above those guys. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know that there's going to be as powerful network effect, network network effects on the on that kind of data level because I don't know that I think you need sort of specialization to some extent to do that really well, or you need some sort of advantage like being being plugged into government records, right? Some sort of single source of truth mm -hmm. for that for that type of data. But nonetheless, I think it's going to remain more fractured than the layer that we sit on, which is sort of that that layer above all those different data sources and understanding what what makes a good profile, what makes a bad profile. Okay. Well, ten years from now, you and I are going to have an adult beverage somewhere, and we're going to do a post mortem <laughs> on this whole thing. Yep. With our blockchain identities and <laughs> exactly yes, yeah. we'll be we'll be buying our beers with Bitcoin or something. Yeah, It'll be yeah. Great. Civic Civic is doing that now, so not with go. Bitcoin, but they're doing they're powering sort of um, the the adult beverages in in um, vending machines. So there you go. These are these are the important problems that need to be solved in, our, in the twenty first century. That's I right. I love it. I love it. Um, okay, so the final question, yeah. and um, the final question has been shifting pretty much every episode, so you get a surprise okay. one, and I think okay. this is the one I'm probably going to stick with, um, <laughs> because I totally stole it from One Million Cups, um, which was founded here in Kansas City. So the question is, what can uh, the audience slash listeners uh, do to help you? So what can the folks that are listening to this today do to help mm. Alloy? 
Okay. Well, if you're not a client, you can become a client. That's number one. Of course. Straightforward. Straightforward. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I'm the second thing is actually sort of related to our last topic, which is I'm very interested in understanding new sources of data around identity. So, and we're seeing new ones emerge, you know, monthly, I think it's stuff that we never thought was even happening suddenly will pop up. So business records, stuff like that, just being digitized. I think we're going to see more and more of that, but um, it's going to start with some small scrappy entrepreneur somewhere. Um, so if you are one of those small scrappy entrepreneurs or, or uh, are related to one of them, I'm super interested in sort of what other kind of data is out there, whether it's fraud data, business data, um, phone data, email data, sort of anything that, that falls into those categories. I, I would love to see kind of the next generation of those solutions um, pop up and would love to integrate with them. What's the best way to get a hold of you if they are one of those people? Uh, email always, laura at alloy.co. It's bold. It's bold. Yeah. She threw it out yeah. in the world. Um, also, you all are hiring. Do you want to make a quick plug for we're, that? Yeah, we're hiring. Yes, thank you. Um, we are hiring for business development, legal and compliance, um, DevOps engineer, some other engineers. So we're hiring uh, in a few more roles to come. So we have maybe five or six that are going to either open or will be open the next few weeks. And would love for people to get in touch with us if they or their friends are, are interested in joining a young, scrappy, fun fintech company. And that's all on the website? That's all on, uh, yeah, you can link to it through, and we can get there through our website. Awesome. All right, yeah. Laura, thank you so much. This was, I learned a ton thank through this. You, so thank you, This has been Yeah, likewise. Fun. Next time we'll do it in French. Ah, voila. <laughs> I can't end on that. That would be the douchiest thing to end on. Let's say bye again. I can't end on a French word. That's just, that's too much. All right. Thanks, Zach. <laughs> All right. See you later. Take care. Bye. Right. Thanks for listening to another episode of For Fintech's Sake. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Laura Speakerman. To find out about more episodes coming out week after week, please subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you're listening on, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc., etc. If you're looking to get in touch, you can reach out to me personally on Twitter at Zach Pettit, Z-A-C-H-P-E-T-T-E-T. -T -E -T. You can reach out, reach out to the show at For Fintech's Sake. You can find us online at forfintechsake.com. And if you're looking to get in touch with me personally about Fountain City Fintech, the podcast, or anything else, you can reach out to me via email at zach.pettit at nbkc.com. And again, please subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps us get in front of other folks and kind of help other people learn more things about fintech. Thank you, and we will talk to you next week.